Yes, and we're turning to Mark, the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. I think it's page 964. We're in chapter 14. And we're coming to the end of our series in Mark's Gospel. Just a quick sort of overview, 12 sessions, uh, looking at the Gospel of Mark and looking at the person of Jesus, our title for the series has been called Jesus Is, and we've looked at different aspects of who he is, and um, tonight I'm looking at Jesus Is, <laughs> I've just made this title up actually, I hate titles, I just, I'd like to preach the passage, and I don't really care what the, t- the title is, because this is what the passage says, Jesus is the Lamb of God, so that's what we're looking at tonight, but we're looking at uh, page 964 from verse 12, let's read together. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he said, one who dips his bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I love that detail at the end of that reading. They just sang a hymn, and then they went. Why don't we pray, and then we'll start. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for what it reveals about who you are and what you've done for us. And we thank you for this account in Mark of the Last Supper, your final moments with your disciples and all that it points to. We pray, Holy Spirit, on Pentecost, that you would move among us Bring us revelation. Open our eyes and show us wonders in your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Pips, is this, you got the photo, the, the ball, the big, the, the chairs, the blue, no one in there. I love this photo. The, the, the fundraiser ball where we're going to have this dinner with, I don't know how many courses it is, with three or four. 
And uh, yeah, and the, the, it's just going to, isn't that going to be epic? I mean, isn't that the kind of occasion that you just remember for quite a long time to come? I mean, yeah? Are you with me? Yeah. We, we all like a good time. We all like a sort of good night out. We like, we like a meal. I love a meal with a, with a number of courses. Anyone else with me? And the more delicious, the better. And that's what we're going to be getting. That's why you, you don't want to miss this, this occasion. There's going to be a feast. And, and I love food. I love meals. We all do, don't we? I mean, they can be such special times, important times in our own lives, in the lives of our families. I mean, just think of Christmas. I mean, who doesn't look forward to Christmas dinner? I mean, with the family, getting together, united. Thank you. There's one or two hands. Just go. I want, if I stick my hand up, I want to see those hands in the air. Stick your hand up. If you like a meal, if you remember certain meals in your life, you're like, that was a good meal. <laughs> Some of those meals might have just been you and one other. I know. St. D's. Hello. Wakey, wakey. No, uh, other times it's just the family, the community coming together, a banquet, a feast like this is going to be. You know, there's one time I remember... Um, an early meal, in my, well, relatively early, when I was about 15, 16. And uh, I was skiing with my family, my dad, and we had some friends out. There's about six or seven of us. And we went for a New Year's Eve meal um, to, well, to celebrate New Year's Eve. And uh, it was a feast. It was a six course. I don't think I'd ever had so many courses. There was aperitifs. There was all this kind of stuff at 15. I mean, that's quite a big deal. And then at the end, you know, when dad thanks dad, came to pay the bill. He actually had to leave one of us hostage while he went to uh, the apartment we were staying in to get more money. I mean, that's how much it said about. I mean, he wasn't expecting that. But we remember these big meals, these important meals, don't we? And it's no different. I mean, in Israel's history, in Israel's practice, there was no more important time in their life than the Passover meal. It was something they'd been celebrating for 1,500 years. I mean, meals in the Middle East was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of covenant. But even for the Jews, even more so. For Israel, it was a time to remember what God had done. And that's what the Passover did in spades. You remember the Passover? This was the time when uh, Israel was in Egypt and they were slaves in Egypt. They'd gone with Joseph. They'd been free people. But then they'd become slaves. And they'd cried out to God for over 400 years. And then God heard their cries. And he sent them Moses, the deliverer. It all led to the Exodus. But it, it came before the Exodus. There came God's judgment. Any Prince of Egypt fans out there? Love that movie. I might watch it tonight. I mean, it's a bank holiday. Why the heck not? <laughs> it's an incredible film. But it shows the exodus and God's judgment on Egypt. The plagues, you know, the gnats, the frogs, the this and that. And then the final plague. Because Pharaoh wouldn't yield. He wouldn't let the people go. God says, I'm going to judge your own homes. And the firstborn male in every house will die when my angel passes over and through that land. And that was his judgment on the whole land and everyone on the land, including the Israelites. But God, in his mercy, made a way for his people to be spared. Made a way for the firstborn Israelite children to be saved. And it was because of the Passover lamb. And God instructed them to take a lamb. And on the day that his judgment was going to come, the angel of death was going to pass through, his instructions were to slaughter that lamb, take its blood and daub it on the doorposts, the lintels of their homes, as a sign to the angel of death who was passing by that they needn't judge that house. 
because a life had already been taken there. Payment had already been made. And so the angel of death literally passed over those homes. And the next day, Pharaoh wakes up, his son is dead. There's mourning, grief throughout the land of Egypt. And he says, go, take your people and go. And Israel leave. Red Sea, promised land. The rest is history. But from that day on, Israel had been remembering this feast, this mighty act of God delivering his people. For 1,500 years they'd been doing it. And here was this guy Jesus we've been seeing in Mark's Gospel. Coming along, doing incredible things, teaching like no one else had, moving in power that no one else had seen, claiming to be the Messiah, God's chosen one, teaching his disciples about his identity, showing them what his mission was to go to the cross, to die, to rise again. They still didn't get it. He was training his disciples, and they're on the way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And his disciples ask him, you know, where are we going to celebrate? And he gives them instructions, as we're going to see. But the amazing thing is that tonight, the account we've just read, that night was to be the last Passover meal, as they knew it, as Israel knew it. 1,500 years of tradition was to come to an end, was to be reformed, reformulated into a different meal, pointing to something else, even greater, pointing to the cross, God's ultimate deliverance of his people from sin. And in this account, we've got one more session in Mark next week with Tim. So we're coming into land, looking at the gospel of Mark. In this account, I think we'll see three things that if we grasp them, if we really get the revelation God wants to bring, I think three things that can change our lives. Firstly, that God is in control. Secondly, all of us, even you, are invited. Thirdly, the feast goes on forever. So firstly, God is in control. I mean, don't you just, wouldn't you just love to believe that more in your life? I mean, if there's one thing I would like to know more of and be assured of, more and more, day by day, it would be to know, with the, given the ups and downs, uh, it would be to know that God is in control. Amen? Anyone else with me? Just to know he's got this. Have you got this? Yeah, I've got it, Pat. Good. Thank God you've got it, because I don't. To know that God is in control, it changes everything. I mean, you just think of the daily, the little things, you know, the anxieties, you know, the unknowns. Oh, gosh, will my train come? Will I make it on time? You know, I'm going to be late to work. Will that project come in? Will I get it? You know, Tim mentioned last week, it's exam season next door. We all remember that, right? I mean, I'm looking out, I'm seeing a lot of graduates out there. Hopefully none of us experiencing exams just now. One more, Dave. Hope it goes well. Thursday. But you know the feeling of exams, that, that, that anxiety, that, that stress, that not. And as Tim said last week, it's not because you haven't done the work, you don't have the knowledge, it's because it's you don't have control. You don't know what questions are going to be asked. I mean, in that situation, wouldn't it be nice to know, whatever the outcome, that God is in control? The day-to-day, -day, or the bigger stuff, you know, the traumas in life. We, we all have them. 
we will have more. The heartbreaks, the relationships that don't go as planned, health, scares, all those things. Wouldn't it be good to know that God is in control? Or even the tragedies, the loss of loved ones, the things that happen that we just simply do not in this life get an answer for. You know, last week, um, well, two weeks ago, I got a call um, from a friend uh, asking me if I'd be involved in the cremation of um, their baby boy. Um, they're a young family. Uh, they've got three kids, and the wife was pregnant with their fourth son five months pregnant and they went uh, they were having some fun and this doctor went to to listen to the heartbeat and wanted to give the kids a chance to hear the heartbeat and they didn't hear a heartbeat they discovered the child had died in the womb the mum was induced gave birth to this perfect baby boy everything there perfectly formed five months old they spent two hours with him. They, they named him Gabriel. And they wanted to have a service to recognize and honor his life. Somehow. They don't really know where they're at with faith. Somehow to, to offer him back to God. And I took that cremation service last week. Seeing that tiny coffin on the side. Incredibly hard. Difficult. Wouldn't it be nice, better than nice, to know that God is in control, even in the tragedy? Well, that's what we see here. One of the things in this passage, we see that Jesus knows the future. He, he, he just knows it. He's got it. I mean, we read of um, the disciples saying, where do you want us to celebrate the Passover? And he says, well, you know, that city, Jerusalem, we're headed to, that we haven't arrived at yet. You know, still a few miles away. Go into that. And when you get there, you're going to bump into a guy carrying a, a big pitcher of water. And then I want you to follow him and go up to the house that he goes to. And then uh, when you get there, ask the owner, where's the place? And he'll tell you, and it'll be upstairs. And, I mean, what? Hello? I mean, he's just saying what's going to happen in the future. I mean, how amazing. Yeah? Do you know what? No one else knows the future apart from God. You know the devil doesn't even know the future? Only God knows the future. All the time Jesus just dropping this stuff, encouragements to his disciples saying, guys, I'm in control. I've got this. I know the future. You'll see a guy. He'll be carrying some water. <laughs> I mean, how, when did you last predict something that happened? I mean, it'd be quite handy, wouldn't it? You know, you know the sports results. You know which team's going to do well. Who's going to score first? You know, whether England going to win the cricket. I mean, I don't want to encourage gambling, but it'd be quite, quite uh, helpful if you did dabble. But none of us can. Because only God knows the future. Jesus knows where they're going to be having dinner that night. And then at dinner, he calls out that he's going to be betrayed. He knows he's going to be betrayed. And by whom? Before it even happens. And beyond that, he even says, having broken bread and shared wine, he says, I won't taste this again until I do it in the kingdom of God. So he's looking 
he's calling the future out one step forward, then a bit further on, and then way in the future. He's saying, I've got this. I know what's coming. I'm in control. God is in control. It's what this meal tells us. It's not anyone else, not Judas. You know, Judas is dealing with the religious leaders at this point. He wants to make a buck. He wants to hand Jesus in. And Mark, the writer, the Bible is telling us Judas isn't in control. The religious leaders that Judas is, is dealing with, you know, Mark, the gospel wants us to know they're not in control. The Romans who ultimately come and, uh, well, the Jews arrest him, but the Romans who eventually nail Jesus to that cross, the Bible is telling us that not even they are in control. You see, it is God alone who's in control. It's he alone who's working his purposes out, pulling the strings. Jesus knows the future. And you know what? Despite knowing what that future holds for him, he chooses it anyway. He chooses the cross. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loved his disciples and he knew there was no other way. Now, isn't that good news today? That whatever we're going through, whatever you're wrestling with, however big the challenge, however bleak the outcomes look to you, and for Jesus, I mean, the cross, it didn't look too happy. Whatever things look like, this meal assures us God is in control. He's working his purposes out. He knows where you're going for dinner. He knows who you'll have it with. He knows what's coming your way tomorrow. He knows when you'll draw your last breath. He knows. God's in control. This meal tells us that. It also tells us a second thing. It tells us that all of us are invited now, just stick a hand in the air if you love an invitation to something. Even if you don't want to go, just give me those hands, you lazy, lazy Brits. We're repenting of being British around here. We're engaging, we're interactive, that's what we like. I mean, we love an invite, don't we? I mean, I mean it's something my friends tease me about, like, uh, because I hate not being invited to something. Just so you know, next time you're raging something. So if someone says they've done something fun, you know, or like, oh, I went to this, my first question, and they'll always pick up on it. I'll dress it up and hide it different ways. I'll be like, oh, cool, really? Who, how'd you go to that? Who, who organized that? <laughs> who, who invited you? And why didn't they invite me? <laughs> I mean, isn't that what we do? We're basically fishing. We want to know, why did I miss out? And you know, the thing about the old covenant, which was coming to an end on this very night, the thing about the old covenant with Israel was it was, it was, so exclusive. I mean, it was just for the Jews, yeah? I mean, you think about the, the temple, the very architecture design of their place of worship. It was just exclusive wall after exclusive wall. So pretty much anyone could rock up to the first court, you know, walk through the first door like, this is amazing. And that's the court of the Gentiles. Anyone's welcome there, Jew, Gentile. Just like, brilliant, enjoy this. What's through that door? Oh, not for you, Gentile. What? That is the court for just Jews and the women's area. So that was just the women's zone. So the Gentiles couldn't go any further. So Jews could then enter. But then the women would get so far and they'd meet another wall. 
beyond which they weren't welcome. And it was just Jewish men. And then beyond that court, it was the holy place where only the priests could go. Only people like me and Tim. <laughs> so they could, they could just hang around. I don't know what they did there. Just hang around. And then within that, at the center, was a place called the Holy of Holies, which is where God's presence dwelt. And that was so holy and so exclusive that only one priest on one day of the year could go in there to make the sacrifice. You know what? He had to have a rope tied around his, his um, ankle. Uh, in case he dropped dead in the presence of God and could be dragged out. I mean, talk about exclusive. Talk about not everyone being invited. And yet here in this passage, with this meal, we read of Jesus saying, this is my blood, talking of the wine, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for many shed for many see that in the world today don't we two billion Christians us gathered here in Britain I mean, this isn't Israel this isn't Jerusalem it's Parsons Green for the many multitudes from every tribe every people every tongue the whole world now invited into relationship with God but even more than this, specific than this, something precious is shown here. We've, we've seen that Jesus knows he's off to the cross. He knows it's his last meal. So, you know, if it's your last meal, you wonder like, well, who, who do you share that with? Who would you share yours with? Who did Jesus share his with? Well, we see the disciples, yeah. But you know what? Mark does something beautiful to give us an insight into the grace, the goodness, the generosity of, of Jesus to these disciples in, in how he frames it and how he sets it out. This is the amazing thing about how the Bible is written, the gospel word. It's just pick up your Bible just where it should open on page 964 and just look. Our passage is flanked by a couple of passages which show something amazing. So in verse 10, our reading started in verse 12. and In verse 10, we read, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. Okay, one of the twelve. So before they have this last amazing dinner, we read of Judas about to betray Jesus. Immediately the dinner ends. Go to verse 27. They've just sung their hymn. I don't know what it was. They've headed out to the Mount of Olives. And we read Jesus telling them, you will all fall away. Speaking to his disciples, his dinner guests, you will all fall away. Peter comes back at him in verse 29. Even if all fall away, I will not. I love Peter. <laughs> but Jesus says, well, actually, Pete, before um, the cock crows twice tonight, or is it twice? Yeah. You will have denied me three times. He's like, no, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. So what Mark's doing is he's showing us what the disciples are really like surrounding either side of this passage about this incredibly intimate meal because Jesus knows it's his last few hours and he's invited specific guests which include Peter and include Judas and yet in just a few hours Judas will be dead having betrayed him Peter will have denied him three times and all of his disciples will have run away 
So who does he share his last supper with? The disciples, yeah. But deserting disciples. Disciples who'll deny him. Disciples who'll betray. Who gets the invite? Who gets on the guest list for Jesus' last supper? These kind of people. People like Peter and Judas. People like you and me. Do you ever feel like you've let Jesus down? Like you've denied him or deserted him? Like you've turned your back on him, even briefly, perhaps to get out of an awkward situation, social situation? Well, the good news is you're welcome at this table. That's the message of this meal. That's the message of the cross. You're welcome to come and receive, to know forgiveness for falling short. And God knows that's each one of us. I mean, isn't it amazing? Just stop, think for a moment. Isn't it amazing that Jesus knows the future? He knows Judas is going to betray him. And yet he chooses to share this meal with him. Why? Because he loved him. Because he loved him. He knew about Judas. He knew what was in his heart. He knew he was robbing from the pot. I mean, Judas took, took care of all the money for the ministry. He knew about his greed, which would eventually be his downfall. But Jesus never gave up on him. Right up till the end, he shared this meal, a sign of friendship, a sign of covenant, which brings home how just how awful the betrayal of Judas was. To break that covenant and betray on the back of sharing a meal was just despicable. The height of betrayal in that culture. But it makes Jesus' love all the more amazing. There's one more detail that actually brings this home. How much Jesus loved Judas. And the key to understanding it is knowing about the seating arrangement of this very dinner party. So Pips, I don't know if we've got that photo, the Leonardo. You might recognize this. Anyone? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, give me the answer. <laughs> yeah, the Last Supper, bye. Sorry, that was more awkward than it was intended to be. Leonardo's Last Supper. Uh, so a fantastic piece of work. Um, you'll notice they, they bunch off in triplets. That was a design at the time that Leonardo was, uh, was drawing. There's a lovely sense of perspective brought by the, uh, the, the things in the, in the wall. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> Leonardo has let us down. He's let us down because he's misled us. Because this isn't what the Last Supper looked like. I mean, this looks like a dinner party in, in SW6. I mean, this is how we would host a dinner party, isn't it? We might have some people around this side, Leonardo. I mean, it's awkward seating right there. Um, but this is wrong because the passage, even Mark's passage, tells us that they were reclining. You see, in the Middle East, they were far more chilled than us. You know, they didn't sit on the upright chair at the high table. They liked to get down get down low and just be as relaxed as possible. So it says they were reclining. They would more, these little white tables you see, their dining tables would be like, a bit like that, but even lower. Because they would recline, they'd kick their feet away from the table, they'd lean in, pats on the elbow, freeing up the right hand to eat. 
And then they talk to the back of their neighbor's head. No, I don't know. Across the table. They talk like that. And they'd be lying on their side, totally relaxed. And the importance why I'm sharing this with you is because this explains, I was interested to discover this, how John was able to lean back and rest his head on Jesus' chest. You remember, have you ever read that? Whenever I've read that, I thought, it's a bit weird, John. (laughs) Quite nice, but a bit weird. And that's why. Because he was so close. Jesus would have been... I don't want to say spooning, but he would have been very close to just be lying like sardines. And so John was just able to lean back and just rest his head on Jesus' chest. But you know what? The amazing thing is, the shock is when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and they start saying, kicking up, not me. Surely not I, Lord. He says, it is one who dips his bread in the cup with me. In John's gospel, he says, it's the one to whom I give this bread. Now, if someone is close enough to dip their bread or be given their bread by Jesus, it would have to mean they were basically sitting right next to him. So in the same way that John was able to lean his head back on Jesus' chest, I believe that Judas was sitting right next to Jesus on the other side. And Jesus would have at any point been able to lean back and put his head on Judas's chest, the very one who was about to betray him. What a picture of intimacy. What a picture of grace, no? Jesus never gave up on Judas. He always invited him in. He didn't even name him, you notice that? He said, it's one of you. He didn't name Judas. Why? Because he was giving him every opportunity to repent, to turn from what he was about to do. And he didn't want to name and shame. Even at the last, he was offering Judas the chance to stay in the fold. But he chose another path. And yet, Judas got an invite to the meal. Now, Does that give you hope today? Hope that there might just be a space for you too at the dinner table. Because it should. Because there is. And it's because of the cross. It's because of this meal. Because of this meal, all of us are invited. So it's a great meal so far, but there's one more thing. And it points to the fact that this meal speaks of a feast that will never end. A feast that will never end. We've already seen that Jesus knows the future, yeah? The guy with the water and the speaking out is going to be betrayed and then that happens. And, and he says one more thing. He says, I won't drink again of this wine until I drink it in the kingdom. When the kingdom is established, when it's finally arrived In other words, Jesus is saying here that he knows he's off to the cross, but he can see beyond that. He can see to the day when he will be in his Father's kingdom, and he can one day see to the day when heaven comes to earth and God's kingdom is established forever. In a few short hours, he'll be hanging on a cross, bearing the weight of all the world's sin on his shoulders, suffering the whole of God's wrath poured out on him. He knows what's coming, but he sees beyond it to the time when he'll drink it again with all of us 
with all of God's people. It's a fantastic vision and hope, but it's also a tremendous warning to us because it tells us that we are all eternal beings, that one day we will all face God, our maker and judge, and that heaven and hell await. Why am I saying this? Well, because of the words Jesus, is, Jesus uses of Judas. And there are few more serious words in all of the Bible than those he says right here. Jesus says, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe, woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. What a thing to say. The fate that awaited Judas. It would have been better if he'd never been born. Now, whilst we've seen God is in control of his purposes on the earth, he refuses to control man to fulfill those purposes. Despite Judas's actions fulfilling scripture, as it says here, Jesus' words and action also point to the fact that Judas had freedom. He had freedom in choosing what he did. He alone was responsible, and Jesus' verdict is that it would have been better if he'd never been born. If we could, even just for a moment, glimpse the reality, the horror, the terror of hell. I sometimes wish we could just so it would make us cling all the more tightly to Jesus, our Saviour, our Redeemer, and that it would fire us up to go out and make him known, to be about our mission, to reach this local community where so many face the same end without Christ. Hell isn't a particularly popular topic, not even in the church. Perhaps understandably so. I mean, it's difficult. It's, it's heartbreaking when you think about it. Someone once said that you should never speak of hell without a tear in your eye. And yet it should also often be spoken of, I think. And no one spoke of it more than Jesus. Why? Because he knew it was the whole reason he'd come. To turn away God's wrath and judgment. To make a way for us. To save us from it. I often wonder if I've lost sight of that too much. If somehow I forget that's what it's all about. That's why this is such good news. We have been saved for eternity. I wonder if I somehow think that Jesus... It's just a nice option, you know, an accessory going through life. You know, I've chosen you, you've got someone else, that's great. You know, somehow you'll be all right in the end as well. Do you know what I mean? This meal, this covenant tells us no. There is no other way. There is no other hope. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The lamb must be slain. The blood alone can take away sin. That was the whole point of Passover. As we've seen, when the angel of death came to those homes, saw the blood of the lamb had already been shed, he realized this debt has been paid and he moved on to the next home. 
The lamb was a substitute, was a sacrifice. This is what they were remembering on that night. And now, here, in this account, here was the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world, about to go to the cross in their place and ours, about to shed his blood so that life and life eternal might be opened up for all. All who would believe, that is, and take, eat, drink. That's the one requirement to receive this eternal life, to enter that banquet that will never end. The good news, it is so free, it is so available. All it requires is that we believe, is that we receive, is that we freely come and eat and drink. Jesus took a meal, the Passover meal, that looked back to God's mighty deliverance of his people from Egypt, and he reorientated it to point to himself, the one true deliverer of all humanity, to whom every other sacrifice, all the millions of lambs through history, that 1,500-year history of Israel, had pointed. He was the true Lamb of God. Truly, on this night, the old had passed and the new had come. And it all began with that one meal. But it's a meal that must be owned. It's a meal that must be appropriated. And each of us must recognize he died for us. As I close, I just want to look at... Um, one passage from Exodus which speaks of this Passover meal and what was required. I've got it up on the screen because the, the NIV translations in your Bible don't turn to it. They flatten the language and you lose this sense but this is closer to the original language and it brings home what I want to say. So these are the instructions. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel saying in the tenth day of this month they shall take to them Every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Now, you might have noticed a development in the language for the keen-eyed among you, but for those like me, let me spell it out. There's a development that happens in this passage that I think is deliberate from God. You see, it begins in verse 3 by referring to that lamb as a lamb. It says, every man must take for himself a lamb. And then in verse 4, this becomes the lamb. You must make your count 
for the Lamb. But in verse 5, it becomes your Lamb. Your Lamb shall be without blemish. You see, the journey to salvation requires moving from seeing Jesus as a Saviour or even the Saviour to seeing him as your Saviour. Going to the cross for your sake. Shedding his blood for your sin. Rising again for your salvation. Have you made that journey? Because each of us must. And we're certainly invited. But there's one final detail I want us to see. It says in the passage that each family, each household must take a lamb on the 10th day of the month. The sacrifice would come on the 14th. And I think this was very deliberate, a deliberate command of God's, because he knew, I mean, they go and pick out a baby lamb and then have it in the house, running around, trotting about for four days. I mean, they'd have to, to feed that lamb. They'd have to care for that lamb. They'd have to house it. I mean, I dare say they'd even cuddle it a bit. I mean, who, amen? Who doesn't love a lamb? Because God knew that in that short space of time, they would bond with it. They would even love it. But then on the 14th day, they'd have to sacrifice it. To pour out its blood on the altar to pay the price for their sin, to take their place. Gutting. But just a picture of what was now to come with Jesus. So beloved of his disciples, so beautiful, so kind, so pure. About to be wrongfully arrested, tried, beaten, stripped, strung up on a cross. So that sinners like Peter, James and John, you and me, even Judas, if he turned, might receive that invitation to come to the feast that will never ever end. What a night. What a meal. A meal that shows us that God is in control. That all of us are invited. And that one day there'll be a feast that will never, ever end. Why don't we stand?